Whatever shape the new government in Afghanistan takes, one thing is certain. Right now, all of its assets and financial resources from outside the country have been frozen or seized. How will this impact the calculations of the Taliban? And what will the effect be on millions of people in Afghanistan as they emerge from decades of war? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to the Real Story segment of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program is broadcast three days a week. We're able to bring independent programming because of the support of our listeners. If you want to show your support and subscribe to this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. Today, we'll be talking to Anne Wright. Anne is a retired United States Army colonel and a former U.S. State Department official in Afghanistan. She resigned in protest from the State Department over the U.S. invasion of Iraq in March 2003 and is today both a journalist and an activist fighting against war. Anne Wright, welcome to The Socialist Program. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. We want to have your insights, especially, Anne, because... While you're now an anti-war activist, you were a longtime U.S. government official. You're a colonel in the U.S. military, and you were in Afghanistan. In fact, you recently wrote an article, which people can read by going to the website Popular Resistance. I want to read the first sentence to you and to the audience. I was on, that's you, I was on the small U.S. Department of State team that reopened the U.S. Embassy in Kabul in December 2001 and strongly feel that the U.S., if it really cares for the people of Afghanistan, should keep the U.S. Embassy open. Now, Anne, let's just get started. How did you arrive in Afghanistan? I want to come back and talk to you about your position and your insistence that the U.S. Embassy stay open. I want to come back to that. But first, For our audience and those who may not know you, just tell the story about how you got to Afghanistan, what your role was there, and what Afghanistan was like when you arrived in December 2001. Well, I lobbied actually to try to go to Afghanistan when I realized that probably the U.S. was going to reopen its embassy. I really didn't agree with the decision of the U.S. government to send military troops in to Afghanistan to go after bin Laden after the 9-11 events, but I wanted to see how this was going to transpire. I'd been in Afghanistan 20 years before as a young person, and I wanted to go back to Afghanistan to see what was going on there. So I lobbied within the State Department to try to get on that small team, and because I'd had a lot of experience with the U.S. military, 
and because I had been in crisis predicaments with uh, the State Department, including closing down the U.S. Embassy in Sierra Leone in 1997 during a violent coup, those two qualifications kind of put me on to uh, a track to be on the small five-person team that reopened the embassy. I also had had a lot of experience in Central Asia. I had been a part of a team that had gone to Uzbekistan to open that embassy and then had two years of experience in the Central Asian region in Kyrgyzstan. So it wasn't like it was a new part of the world for me. So I was selected for it and then met up with the other group that was a part of the group that was going into Afghanistan to reopen that embassy that had been closed for 12 years. We met up in Islamabad, Pakistan, got some briefings from the embassy there that had actually been covering Afghan issues for the State Department during the 12 years the embassy had been closed. And the reason it was closed was because of the violence. After the Soviets left, the Mujahideen, the freedom fighters that the U.S. had sponsored and paid for and bought weapons, they started fighting among themselves. And really, the most of the damage that was done in the city of Kabul was not done by the Soviets. It was done by the Mujahideen fighting among themselves, including firing rockets across the town. When we finally got to the embassy in Kabul after a four-hour flight in the middle of the night from Islamabad, landing at Bagram Air Base in the cold winter, this was in December, there was snow on the ground everywhere, it was bitterly cold, and the U.S. military that had already taken over Bagram Air Base, escorting us out the back of a C-130, putting us in some cars and starting up the cars and saying, you're going to have to sit here until daylight because... The roads are insecure. We don't know if there are bombs that have been placed along them. You're going to have to stay here until we can at least see what's out there. And then later on that morning, we were taken to the Chancery Building and met our Afghan employees who for the past 12 years had been keeping the embassy intact. They had kept the common criminals away from the building. They had kept the lights on. They had kept a couple of the cars running. And they had also dug a big hole for a bunker that they could go into whenever the Mujahideen was fighting among themselves and rockets were flying over. And that's really where we lived, really, for the next three months. The the core team lived in a two-bedroom bunker with the only working toilet and shower in the complex. And by that time, we were starting to get Marines in, and the Marines provided the security, 100 Marines five of us in one toilet. Let me tell you, it was quite a time. Yeah. And you eventually resigned from the State Department and from the U.S. government after the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And and almost everyone who knows you now, I mean, people like myself who knew you or have come to know you, we know you as an anti-war organizer, an anti-war activist, a steadfast opponent of the wars of the empire. And, you know, there's not that many people in government who end up leaving the government on principle. You had Matthew Ho, who resigned in 2010 or 2009 in opposition to Obama's surge. Of course, there was Daniel Ellsberg, who was an important official in the Pentagon and with contractors doing work with the Pentagon. He, of course, released the Pentagon Papers. You know, it's so rare in the U.S., at least, that government officials actually act on principle. 
I wanted to say that because, you know, all of us have a great debt to you because of your courage. I mean, was it hard for you to resign in 2003? I want to just ask you that before we go back to Afghanistan. Well, yes, it was difficult. You know, if you've been a part of any organization, and whether it's the U.S. military or the State Department working for the U.S. government for as long as I had, I had certainly held my nose to a lot of policies that I didn't really agree with that the U.S. government was getting involved in in the nearly 30 years that I was working, well over 30 years that I was working in the U.S. government. And like most government employees, you learn how to kind of hold your nose to things you don't like and then try to get into areas of the U.S. government that you feel comfortable with and that you think are doing good for people because there are some parts of our government that actually do that. But when it came finally, you know, this idea that we're going to invade and occupy another country, an oil-rich Arab Muslim country that had not attacked the United States, and I didn't believe for a moment the Bush administration's hype about there being weapons of mass destruction. Even in the media, it was saying that the weapons inspectors, most of whom were CIA persons or DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency persons on this UN inspection team, they were saying they could find no weapons of mass destruction. So, you know, it took a while for me to finally make the big decision to to leave the organization that I had lots of friends and, you know, had been a part of my history for a long time. But I surely am glad I did because I've met a lot of new friends like yourself And it's been very important to add my voice to those of you all who've been challenging many, many of the policies that I actually had something to do with, much less the ones that I, even I said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going to be working on. Yeah. And, you know, I worked with Ramsey Clark, former U.S. Attorney General, for a long time. I worked in his office for a long time. And, you know, as a young person, because I was an organizer against the war in Vietnam, and he was attorney general in 1967 and 68, I said to him once, I said, not once, I asked him a couple of times, I said, why or how could you stay in the U.S. government when the U.S. was bombing Vietnam? And he said, it would have been easy for me to have laughed over that, but there were other things going on in America, like the civil rights movement, the black freedom struggle. He was very close to Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King and many other figures in the black civil rights movement. And he, in fact, was using the Justice Department, for instance, to provide tents and cots for the Poor People's Campaign occupation of Washington, D.C. that took place in spring of 1968. And he said, you know, if I had left, I would have certainly been replaced by somebody who was far to the right and who would have been probably in all likelihood hostile or certainly not a real friend of the civil rights movement. So I think it's important for people who have never been in the government and people who are largely organizing against the U.S. government policies, foreign and domestic policies, to acknowledge that there are individuals like Ramsey Clark, like Daniel Ellsberg, like Matthew Ho, like yourself, people who try to find an area in the government where they can actually do something and then also part ways with the government when they have to. And in the case of Ramsey, when the Democrats lost, he went straight to Hanoi and sat on the dikes, you know, where the U.S. was about to bomb and became part of that very courageous anti-war stance. So anyway, I'm just saying that because I think 
I just want to pound home the idea that this is so important that people who, for whatever reason, start their career in the U.S. military or in the U.S. government also can be part of the anti-war movement. And I think that your example you know, speaks volumes to that. Let's go back to Afghanistan. On Tuesday, we did a show and we used an article by Alyssa Rubin, who was a New York Times correspondent. Perhaps you know her. She was in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And she said, you know, the Taliban were prepared to surrender by November 2001. They were dispersed. They were scared. You know, they were defeated. She quotes in her article, Barnett Rubin, he says, quote, the Taliban were completely defeated. They had no demands except amnesty, recalled Barnett Rubin, who worked with the United Nations political team in Afghanistan at the time. Messengers shuttled back and forth between Mr. Karzai and the headquarters of the Taliban leader, Mullah Mohammed Omar in Kandahar. Mr. Karzai envisioned a Taliban surrender that would keep the militants from playing any significant role in the country's future, but Washington, confident that the Taliban would be wiped out forever, was in no mood for a deal. Quote, the United States is not inclined to negotiate surrenders, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld said at a news conference in November 2001. I mean, that's really something, and when you think about 20 years later, hundreds of thousands of dead Afghans, thousands of American military personnel dead, tens of thousands more wounded. The U.S. spent $2 trillion, maybe it's $5 trillion when you add up all of the disability and healthcare costs. Donald Rumsfeld sitting there in November 2001 says, we don't negotiate a surrender. I mean, since when? I mean, the U.S. negotiated a surrender at the end of World War II. But the arrogance and the hubris and maybe the racism of U.S. government officials was just so dominant. And here we are 20 years later with the Taliban as the new power. Well, indeed. And, you know, if you think, look at the cast of characters that were there. It was Donald Rumsfeld. It was Dick Cheney. Hold no bar, Dick Cheney. I'll shoot you in the face, Dick Cheney. Literally. Yeah. Richard Pearl. You know, all of those guys who had an agenda, and we know what the agenda was, the Project for the New American Century, which was to take down seven countries in the Middle East. But the same thing happened for Iraq 18 months later. Saddam Hussein's members of his cabinet all had discussions with the U.S. government about how to prevent a U.S. military attack and occupation on Iraq. And the Bush administration said, hell no, we're not going to talk to you. We're going to go in and kill people and take over your country, which the U.S. did. I mean, tragically, it seems to be part of the culture of the political class of the U.S. that we do whatever we want to because we got more weapons than anybody else. And we'll occupy your country for 20 years and we'll kill tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of your people and tough noogies. Yeah. You know, and I want to turn now to an interview that David Petraeus, a panel discussion that he participated in. It was organized by one of the media outlets. It took place yesterday. And it's very interesting. I have three short audio clips. Petraeus was in charge of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. He was, I believe, in charge of the NATO forces. He was CIA director. He left in disgrace. But, you know, obviously his rehabilitation has been very rapid. I, I remember seeing on social media, 
you actually met Petraeus. And at first, he because you were a colonel, he thought you were a friend and he thanked you for your service. And then you, I think you were giving him an earful about the U.S. wars. What happened there? I want to just get that little story before I play this audio clip from David Petraeus. Yes, I ran into General Petraeus in the hallway in the Congress one day. He had been in there testifying on Afghanistan, and I was able to kind of intercept him and, you know, with a big smile on my face, hi, I'm Colonel Ann Wright. And of course, he stopped. Oh, how are you? Well, I'm okay, except for these policies on Afghanistan. We should not be increasing the numbers of people, you know, going into it like that. Well, all of a sudden, his entourage kind of came up around and iced me out, pushed me kind of away, and off they went again. But we had other encounters during other congressional testimony that he did. One time, he and Brian Crocker, with whom I had worked in Afghanistan in 2002, Brian came in as the first official charge d'affaires, or the acting ambassador, and I was the deputy, the deputy chief of mission of the embassy in Afghanistan. They were testifying, and there were probably 20 of us that got arrested during that testimony. People just kept popping up, popping up, and that's when we were calling General Petraeus, General Betraeus. So yes, I did have a little bit of a confrontation with him. So you were number two after Ryan Crocker at the embassy. That's correct, for about three and a half months. Yeah, so I'm looking again at that article I mentioned in the New York Times by Alyssa Rubin. She quotes Crocker. He's very upset, obviously, about what's happened. He said, quote, When I heard the U.S. were going to meet in Doha with the Taliban and without the Afghan government, I said, that's not a peace negotiation. Those are surrender talks. So now the talks were all about us retreating without the Taliban shooting at us as we went, Crocker added, and we got nothing in return. Well, in a way, it did seem like surrender talks on the other side. Now, Rumsfeld said, we don't negotiate a surrender, but obviously 20 years later, and the U.S. could not win the war in Afghanistan. The war would have gone on and on and on. I mean, in the last two years, as we've been saying on this show, in 2018 and 2019, the U.S. dropped 15,000 bombs on Afghan positions. Are people who are upset about what's happening right now of the opinion that it's okay to drop 7,500 bombs and missiles on Afghanistan every year? And a quarter million Afghans are dead. And 71,000 of them are civilians, and a whole lot of them are children. Anyway, let's go back, because I don't want to get lost here or digress too much, but I want to play this interview by David Petraeus, or a clip of it. It's extremely interesting, and I want to get your comments. Let's listen. What the Taliban will be like in the weeks, months, and years that lie ahead. I'm not sure that even they do. What they do know is that they had to present a kinder, gentler image to the world. Um, And I'm sure that they were aware already that they are going to be in incredibly dire financial straits, that they're going to be many millions of dollars short, especially with the funds of Afghanistan having been frozen in the U.S. and most other countries, and the IMF special drawing rights put on hold uh, as well. There was $450 million that they were expecting to get. So the lights could literally go out 
in Kabul and around the country if they can't resolve that. And the quality of life of Afghan citizens would deteriorate very considerably. The economy already, I'm sure, has taken a huge hit. There's certainly no outside investment coming in. The international organizations that supported so many of the basic services provided to Afghan people, many of them have left uh, and so forth. So they are in for a very, very difficult time ahead. They have to be conscious of that. They have to be trying to get the so-called technocratic uh, government folks that can help them work through this. And they they have to realize, I think, that truly egregious actions on their part will result in a in the U.S. and others uh, refusing to bail them out when the time comes. So David Petraeus is sounding pretty confident there that whatever the government is, whatever shape it takes, whatever iteration it is, obviously the Taliban will be at the very center of it, but it may not be only the Taliban. The country is cash starved. There's no money coming in, no investment coming in. Basically, the lights are about to go off in Kabul. I want to play one other very short, it's just 35 seconds, and another audio clip from that St. Petraeus interview, and then get your comments and write. So I think the big issue here is this enormous fiscal gulf uh, that extends in front of the Taliban, and that has to be setting in. Um, it is already being pretty widely reported that the economy in Kabul and so forth, although people are back on the streets and all the rest of that, uh, that that is starting to show the signs uh, of uh, the Taliban taking over and the reluctance of people from the outside uh, to come in and the alacrity with those on the inside who have any means whatsoever to get out. So, Anne Wright, David Petraeus is obviously of the opinion, and other people on the panel were also of the opinion, that the Afghan government is really dependent on its integration or the previous government's integration into the world economy, but in particular, completely dependent on governments, banks, and other financial institutions for its lifeblood. And he's basically saying, look, as things stand now, the lights are going to be going off in Kabul. Well, indeed. I mean, the lights would have gone off on the elected, so-called elected government of Afghanistan if the international community had not given all the money to it. Afghanistan is unable to stand on its feet financially, whether it was the elected government or the Taliban. And going back to what you said about Brian Crocker, about negotiating with the Taliban, well, let's remember that it was Donald Trump's administration. In fact, one of the campaign promises that he had was that he was going to end America's longest war. So back in 2017 and 18, he sent Salmay Halazad, the former U.S. Special Envoy to Afghanistan, when I was there in 2002. And then he became the U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan. Then he was the U.S. Ambassador to Iraq. Then he was the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. I mean, this guy's got a lot of experience. He is Afghan. He grew up till he was 13 in Afghanistan, and then his family moved out of Afghanistan. Well, Zalmay Halazad was sent to negotiate, you know, to get a peace agreement. Well, the Taliban said, we are not going to sign anything with you if the Afghan government has anything to do with it, because we think it's your puppet government, it's an illegitimate government, we're not going to sign anything. And ultimately, the decision of the Bush administration, President Bush, to get 
some sort of agreement signed so he could say during the election, I got the agreement signed. And what Zalme came up with was, well, we'll just sign it with the Taliban and leave the government of Afghanistan out, which meant that subsequent, well, even in the four-page document that came out of that agreement, it says there can be future negotiations with the Taliban and the government. But the Taliban said, we're not negotiating with the government, even though the government did send delegations to Doha for negotiations, but they never went anywhere. So the Trump administration set the government up for failure, and the Trump administration also refused to process one of the special immigrant visas that were to go to those men and women who had helped the United States government, either in the military or the embassy, whose lives could be in danger by the Taliban. The Trump administration did not process one of those applications. And then when Biden came in and said, yes, we're going to follow through because he, well, in the last 10 years anyway, he's been saying, you know, we need to get out of Afghanistan. So he was willing to go ahead with the timetable that the Trump administration had, even though the processing of all of these, perhaps even 50,000 visas, special immigrant visas, was going very slowly. But he said, we're going to go ahead with this. Well, now on the financial side of it, as I mentioned, no government, whether it was the elected government of Afghanistan or whether the de facto government of the Taliban, has the capability of financial independence. They just don't. They are totally dependent on international loans to them. And the $7 billion the U.S., is holding the IMF monies, the World Bank monies, all of those are being withheld. And one could say, is it to purposefully undermine any government that is not a U.S. international approved government to make sure they fail so that the international governments can say, oh, maybe we need to go back in to help out. Now, the one thing that is not being said is, Will the Taliban use any of its billions of dollars that reportedly it has gotten for its role in the heroin trade? Because certainly the poppy crops of southern Afghanistan have been a major source of funding for the Taliban, even though prior to 2001, the Taliban said we do not participate in the drug, the opium fields or anything like that. But After the U.S. invaded and occupied, the Taliban said, well, that's one way to get some money for our military operations, so they would become a part of it. Yeah, Afghanistan is in deep trouble financially, and one of the things that I've done, I've written a letter saying to Secretary of State Blinken saying, we need to keep the U.S. embassy open. We don't need military troops, but we need to keep the embassy open, and we have got to give the de facto government an ability to at least meet the basic needs of the people of Afghanistan if we really do care about the people of Afghanistan. Yeah, those are such important points. And I want to play another audio clip. This is from Ajmal Ahmadi. He was speaking on the same panel with David Petraeus. He's the former acting minister of commerce and industry of Afghanistan and the acting governor of the Central Bank of Afghanistan. And I mean, he sounds like an Afghan-American. He was educated in the United States. He lived in the United States. I think he only has been 
in the former Afghan government, the now toppled government for a little while. And he tells the story of how he left. He fled, I think, the same day as Ashraf Ghani. But a lot of people who are very connected to the United States, who are really kind of running the show for the elected government in Afghanistan, the so-called elected government. Anyway, I want to play, this is a two-minute audio clip, but it's really interesting because he, again, was the acting governor of the Central Bank of Afghanistan, and that bank's assets have now been frozen by the Federal Reserve. Let's listen to this clip. What is your view as to how they should engage or not engage with with, with the Afghan government and and the Afghan economy at this point? Because part of the the, the success, frankly, of of the last 20 years, if there are successes, is the reintroduction of Afghanistan to a regional economy, uh, to an international economy to a certain extent. And is there a risk of of that influence being cut off uh, overnight if you cut off the banking system, if you cut off aid and and, and those kinds of things that the Taliban, as General Petraeus says, clearly needs right now? Well, I think we can start by taking a look at what's already been announced. Uh, so far, um, Germany, I believe, has announced uh, a cut of $300 million. The EU has, uh, I think, stopped their $1 billion portfolio. Likewise, the World Bank has stopped their $1 billion portfolio. There were flows of uh, from the U.S. through Sistica about $3 billion per year, uh, which will largely be cut. Uh, and so, and of course, the U.S. Treasury uh, has frozen the approximately $9 billion in international reserves. So you can already see what the process is. Uh, they are being cut off from the international financial system. They are being cut off from international uh, donor flows. And so uh, that's going to pose a very large problem with them, as, as General Petraeus outlined. First of all, because you you can think of it as um, the international community freezing the stock of international assets, and and that being the international reserves, the $9 billion. And then secondly, uh, largely stopping or uh, slowing the flow of international assets by stopping uh, all these international aid flows. And so when you take a look at that picture, that's uh, you're, you're, you're changing from a situation where Afghanistan had $9 billion in international reserves, so approximately 15 months import coverage ratio, which is quite a high ratio, to a situation where they have perhaps uh, you know 10 or tens of millions of dollars, so they only have less than a week of import coverage ratio. So the, the entire framework has now been changed. Really important facts there. And I mean, obviously, this man who was the acting governor of the central bank is really, you know, he's from the United States, educated here. I mean, he may have been born in Afghanistan. But again, going back to what Petraeus is saying, they're emphasizing the dire strait that any Afghan government is going to face now that it's completely isolated financially. Well, that's right. And if you look at what the history of the United States is, we normally do try to strangle governments we don't like. <laughs> I mean, we've tried to strangle the Iranian government by putting sanctions on it and taking it out of the international financial system of saying to any companies or any government that has any dealing with Iran that we, the U.S., will put sanctions on you as well as you know the blockade of U.S. money that's going into Iran. The same for Venezuela, the same for Cuba, the same for North Korea. The U.S. 
seems to have this propensity for invading and occupying countries, killing people, and then strangling their financial systems. And that's what ultimately will happen unless there's a breakthrough where essentially the G7 says to the U.S., wait a minute, you know, we're going to have an even bigger refugee crisis on our hands if you don't relinquish some of this money so that the government, which happens to be Taliban now, can at least do some of the basic government obligations like keeping the electricity going, like paying the police that have come back on the streets, by paying government workers and even perhaps women that do get to go back to work in the government system, or maybe they don't. Who knows what's going to happen there? But really, the future of the country really depends on whether the international financial community wants no migration or little migration coming out of Afghanistan, or whether they're willing to accept even more millions of Afghans that have to flee because there are no services that are going on in Afghanistan. Sure. I mean, if there's no electricity, there's a 300,000 strong Afghan army. Even if it was only being paid intermittently, people were getting a salary. They're now unemployed. Really, really a dire situation. So, you know, it makes me wonder whether some of the comments from the Taliban leadership and Taliban, well, maybe they're not leaders, but they're spokespersons, and you don't know whether they're telling the truth or not. But they seem to be indicating that they weren't expecting for Kabul to fall so quickly, that they were, in fact, looking to create and liaisoning with a number of the people they've been negotiating with for the past two years in a way that would create a government that wasn't only the Taliban. It would be obviously dominated by the Taliban because of their they are the new military force. But the Taliban would have anticipated this kind of strangulation. They haven't been the government for 20 years. The situation in society has changed a lot in 20 years. Now they'll be the incumbent party, basically, as the country is, you know, given this very, very bleak choice. I want to play an audio clip. This is we did it a couple of days ago, but I want to have you hear it, Anne, and get your Response. This is the Taliban Cultural Commission representative Abdul Kahar Balki. He gave the interview with Al Jazeera. We have a few clips, but I want to start with the first one because he's indicating that they were surprised too. The consultations are ongoing, and uh, of course, it, it is going to be uh, an inclusive system. We are in talks and we have a a relationship, a working relationship of, uh, with the Americans about the security arrangement. And uh, the outside check posts are uh, in our control and inside is uh, under the control of uh, the United States forces. And they're in constant contact with one another. It is very unfortunate for people to be rushing to the airport the way they are at the moment. I think it would have been much better because we have announced general amnesty for everyone, the security forces from senior to the junior level. And this fear or this hysteria that has taken place is unfounded. The developments were so fast that uh, all people were taken by surprise. And uh, when we entered Kabul, and it was not 
pre-planned because we announced initially that we do not want to enter Kabul and we want to reach a political solution before entering Kabul, making a joint and inclusive government. But what happened was that the security forces left and they abandoned their places and we were forced to ask our forces to enter and take over security. Very interesting, right, Anne? Well, it certainly is. They seem to be as surprised as everybody else was that they were able to walk into Kabul without firing a shot. Although, it, you know, all you had to do is look at the map day by day by day to see how many of the provincial capitals were falling or were were actually being taken over by the Taliban, most of the time without any shots being fired there either, that the government forces were seeing that they really weren't being supplied by the central government, that the U.S. forces were leaving, were, even though there was a peace agreement, in the eyes of the Afghans, it's an abandonment because our government didn't really get to, being the Afghan government, didn't really have a part of this peace agreement with the Taliban and you, the U.S., did the agreement, and then you're taking your 2,500 troops out. So who's going to protect us as the Afghan soldiers? And many of them not being paid, not being supplied with food or ammunition. And so in in the Afghan way, as I was told when I went to Afghanistan in December of 2001, I was told, well, you know, we've had battles, we've had fighting in our country for centuries, and There is a way that, you know, if you know you're going to get run over, that your forces, your militia forces are going to be run over by a stronger one, you surrender, join up with the stronger one, and that's just the way we do things, live to live another day. And that's really what happened. They would put up the white flag or just leave. There were some times of retaliation. There was one place, uh, 22 soldiers were executed by the Taliban. But in general, the military forces were able to dissolve and go into the community, although I'm sure the Taliban know who they are. But then the Taliban kind of rolled into Kabul and was as surprised as as everyone else. And then when you look at who has been talking to the Taliban, the senior leadership of it, it's the old leadership of the very first administration, Hamid Karzai himself, the interim president and then elected president for eight years. He's been sitting down in his home with the senior Taliban leaders, joined with him by the first minister of foreign affairs that I met. And I met both Karzai and, of course, Abdullah Abdullah many times when I was there in 2001 and 2002. Abdullah Abdullah is speaking with the Taliban as is the brother of the last president, Ashraf Ghani, who fled. His brother invited one of the senior Taliban to his home for a discussion and apparently provided him hospitality for the evening. So there are coalitions that are being formed, and they all know each other. They've been dealing with each other for the last 25 years. When the Taliban came in in 1996, through the time of two different presidential administrations. So these guys know each other pretty darn well. And particularly after two years in Doha, where everybody was living in luxury apartments that were eating the meals in the big hotels where they were having these negotiations, and the Taliban apparently sending their kids to international schools in Doha, 
something that has been brought up (laughs) by some of the BBC reporters to some of the Taliban leaders out in the rural areas, those rural Taliban guys who are saying, no, we'll never let girls go to school. That's just not the way we do things. And then this woman reporter on BBC said, well, did you know that your senior leadership that's been living in Doha for the last two years, they've let their girls go to international schools in Doha. And this one footage shows the uh, rural Taliban guy. You can just see his eyes widen and he kind of is thinking, those jerks, man. And then he says, well, every person is able to do what they feel they need to. But in my village, girls will not go to school. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes that we're not told about really on our TV. But I can imagine, particularly now that we know the CIA director, Bill Burns, has flown into Kabul and has been there at least two days. And he is in direct talks with the Taliban, with whom CIA operatives in Afghanistan and in Doha have been talking with the senior Taliban for the last many years. Yeah, and the person he met with had been involved in negotiations with the U.S., and then the U.S. arrested him and sent him to Guantanamo, I believe. Well, he was actually in prison in Pakistan, as far as I know. This was in the, I think, 2002 or 2003, and the U.S. asked the Pakistanis to put him in prison. There's another person that was actually sent to Guantanamo who was then released and was a part of the negotiating team also. So it's really interesting that here you have Taliban that the U.S. has put in prison. And you think about retaliation and retribution for their lives that have been, you know, what the U.S. did to them. If indeed we don't see acts of retaliation, I think it'll be a miracle. And when you think about it historically, and we've talked about this on the show a lot, so I won't go over the history, but a lot of these same forces who are fighting each other for the last 20 years were allied against the government that came into power in 1978, a socialist government, a government that was diplomatically and eventually militarily aligned with the Soviet Union, which entered Afghanistan in December 1979 as the CIA was supporting all of these forces in their struggle against socialism. And the great crime of that socialist government was that it had an alliance with the Soviet Union. And of course, the Soviet Union at that time with the Southern Asian republics, some of the ones that you served in later were all part of the Soviet Union and they share a long border with Afghanistan. I want to go back as we start to wrap up and, and go to thinking about what comes next. And again, because you've been there, you've been in the region a lot, you were in the military a lot, you have a different perch, a different way, or a different set of insights, perhaps, than people who have never been in government or certainly in the State Department. But one of the things that came through in this panel discussion where David Petraeus Again, he was, you know, the head of U.S. command in Afghanistan, head of NATO command, also the head of the CIA. All of the panelists, while they're worried about this or that, they're all glad that the battle is coming to an end. But the reason for it is, one, the U.S. can't win, and two, the U.S. needs to focus, as the Biden administration is focusing, on a bigger enemy, And that would be China, which, of course, also shares a small border with Afghanistan. 
And it's very, very revealing how this panel discussion played out, again, that took place yesterday. I want to play one more audio clip from David Petraeus. He's talking about the rare earth minerals and the great mineral resources of Afghanistan, all of which is very, very critically important for high tech and part of the competition between the United States and China as the United States really readies itself for an even bigger battle. I mean, when you think about it, like the U.S. didn't win in Vietnam, didn't really succeed in its goals in North Korea either. It was driven back, didn't succeed in Iraq, didn't succeed in Afghanistan. But hey, let's get ready for a war with China. I mean, just posing it that way makes you see how fundamentally absurd it is and bizarre. But anyway, part of the reason for it is revealed in Petraeus's other and perhaps our last audio clip from David Petraeus. Let's listen. One other point, if I could, when it comes to China, I just want to uh, add to the, the previous answer. China obviously has its eye on the extraordinary mineral wealth that Afghanistan has. Uh, we estimated when I was the commander in Kabul that they had somewhere around $2 trillion of all these different minerals in the ground, including large quantities of rare earths, huge quantities of lithium that was so so accessible you could literally shovel it out with uh, yourself. Um, so that would be very attractive to them, noting, of course, that there's none of the human capital, physical capital, uh, supply chain, all of that is, is missing. But, of course, they did try to mine for copper in a mine that was just south of of Kabul in northern Logar province, uh, from which they withdrew after there were some mortar rounds and rockets shot at them. That has to be in the back of their mind as well, and I assume it's in the back of the minds of the Taliban also, because it's the one country that has the extraordinary uh, resources and could actually come in and, and exploit this mineral wealth now that the source of insecurity, by and large, the Taliban has been removed, at, at least in most of the Pashtun areas uh, of Afghanistan, which is where many of these rare earths reside. So that will be yet another factor in all of this. So, and Petraeus goes on and he reiterates over and over again that he, he salutes Biden for uniting the allies in preparation for a decoupling from China, pressure on China, you know, the whole sort of lingo for the new Cold War, which is, of course, a precursor to a possible hot war and all of that. But when I think about that, and and I want to get your opinion on this, in terms of the geostrategic calculations of what comes next, if the United States refuses to allow any financial integration with the new government in Afghanistan, if they seize their assets, sanction them, Germany, the EU, the UK, the World Bank, the IMF, all of them freeze any drawing rights or any rollover of loans, just cut the country off, then the country has no option. It has to turn somewhere. And one would think, well, there's Iran, which it borders, China, which it borders. And they sent the Taliban had a delegation, a high-level delegation that went to China not so long ago. So there's China, there's Russia as well. It seems to me that in a way, from an imperial point of view, you'd want to integrate Afghanistan into the U.S. sphere of influence, so to speak, even if it's a Taliban government, because the U.S. doesn't seem to mind the Saudi government's 
odious policies when it comes to human rights or the rights of girls or the rights of its neighbors. It doesn't matter because the Saudis will do the bidding of the United States. If the Taliban, if the U.S. could make a deal with the Taliban, the U.S. could work with the Taliban, as it actually did prior to 2001 at some levels. And on the contrary, if it doesn't do that, does Afghanistan under a new government have any other option but then to reach out to Iran and to China and to Russia? Well, very good points. And of course, you know, the Taliban did have uh, contacts with the United States back from its 1996 to 2001. Remember the photographs of the Taliban being in Houston to talk to the oil companies? So the issue of oil, minerals, when I was there in 2001, we certainly knew about the Chinese lease on a huge part of the area outside of Kabul that was that copper mine that Petraeus talked about. And they've already got the lease on it. They can go back in. When you look at the massive Chinese expenditure on its Belt and Road Initiative, where they are spending trillions of dollars as an outreach from the not shipping by boats all of their materials, but creating a road and railroad network that goes into Europe. They certainly are probably with a great smile on their face watching the U.S. in turmoil, and they would be willing to finance the Taliban, the Russian government sitting there going, you guys got yourself into this one. And yes, we'll be glad to help the Taliban government. You know, the U.S. has this propensity again. If it's ever beaten, which it is every time, but you think about Cuba, the first delegation after the Cuban Revolution in 1958, 1959, was not to Russia or the Soviet Union. It was to the United States saying, we know that we've, you know, we've kind of kicked out a lot of business people, big corporate groups that had ties in the U.S., but, you know, we want to work with you, the U.S., for the people of Cuba. Well, the U.S. rebuffed them. We rebuff any small nation that has the audacity to counter the U.S. imperial policies. I'm sitting right now in Honolulu, Hawaii, which is the headquarters of the Indo-Pacific Command of the U.S. military. And you think about the war buildup that's going on, the rhetoric that the Biden administration and military commanders here in Hawaii are talking about China as our enemy, specifically China as our enemy, something that normally you may have people that you are concerned about, but you don't name them and you don't call them your enemy. China is a competitor, a very strong competitor economically. It is no competitor when you really look at the massive military that the U.S. has and its continuing buildup in what's called the South China Sea. It is not the South American Sea. It is a sea named for the largest country that's right around there. But the U.S. has put a massive naval armada in there saying we are going to challenge the freedom of navigation. We have to be able to go anywhere we want to. The Chinese have said, well, that's right, but we have our own interests and we're going to put our ships, since it is the South China Sea, we're putting our ships out there. There are armadas that by miscalculation, by mistake, there can be an inadvertent military conflict. Although from the rhetoric we get from the Biden administration and our U.S. military, it would be not inadvertent, it would be purposeful. The U.S. is putting so many aggressive acts 
just last week, 22 jet fighters flew from Hawaii into Guam, and they've been having big military exercises there. The U.S. has been putting a finger in the eye of the Chinese over Taiwan for 40 years, ever since, or 50 years since Nixon had the one China policy, but did mean that Taiwan, the U.S. would not recognize Taiwan, but we would support it militarily. It's really an odd situation. We would support it militarily and economically, and Taiwan being a real economic powerhouse now, constructing most of the little computer chips, or many of them that we use in so many things here, well, starting with the Trump administration, they sent in the highest level U.S. government officials in 40 years just to poke an eye at the Chinese. And the Biden administration has continued it with a big weapon sale to Taiwan. The Chinese don't just sit there on their thumbs, though. So they've been sending their fighter aircraft across that Taiwan Straits, which is only like 15 miles long, right to the air defense zone of Taiwan to say to the U.S., we know what you're doing, and this is our part of the world. And, you know, don't do this stuff, you know. Economically, China is winning. Militarily, the U.S., again, is on a fool's mission. Normally, we invade and occupy tiny countries, and certainly that don't have nuclear weapons. But if we get into a military conflict with China that has a big military, but not as big as the U.S., it does have... 350 nuclear weapons, and we have 1,700 of them that are on hairpin alert, most of them in submarines that are off China anyway. I mean, this thing could accelerate so quickly for the detriment, if not destruction, of the world. I couldn't agree with you more. The U.S. is playing with fire. And as you said, wars can start by accident. Wars could start because one side climbs the escalation ladder. The other side has to climb the escalation ladder so as not to appear weak. And as you climb higher and higher on a ladder, it's very easy to tip over. Again, for all of our audience, the United States is meeting with NATO allies in European countries who were upset because the U.S. acted unilaterally. But the fact of the matter is the U.S. military budget is larger than the entire other 29 members of NATO combined. By two times. And the U.S. has, as and has mentioned, hundreds, perhaps as many as a thousand military bases around the world, addicted to war, addicted to militarism, seeing every issue in the world through the lens of militarism. That undoubtedly makes the world a very, very, very dangerous place. We were speaking with Anne Wright. She is a retired United States Army colonel a former U.S. State Department official in Afghanistan, a courageous individual who, like so few from the government, resigned in protest over its policies, and in particular, the criminal U.S. invasion of Iraq in March 2003. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back Tuesday. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. 
Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.